Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our messy public conversations and how we can have better encounters with people different from ourselves and people we disagree with. We're excited to announce our Sacred Live event on the 11th of September with Lydia Fox and Richard Ayoade at the Curzon Cinema in Bloomsbury. Details will be on our website. As always, please rate and share the podcast so other people can find it. And if you fancy writing a review, I really love reading them. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Mim Skinner. Mim is the author of Jailbirds, which contains stories of her time teaching art in a woman's prison. She currently runs the Women's Project for the charity Handcrafted, supporting women to connect to community, housing and recovery through creativity. She's also co-founder of Refuse, which works to intercept food that would otherwise go to landfill and do some good with it. We spoke about what she learned from working with female prisoners, the positive influence of living in the Northeast, having grown up in the home counties, and why feminism sometimes struggles to accommodate the most vulnerable women. I found this conversation really challenging and inspiring, and I hope you enjoy it. Mim, I'm going to ask you the big meaty question about your sacred values. And by this, we don't necessarily mean anything religious, but more the deep principles or values that have shaped your life that you try and live by. And when they're pressed on and where they're compromised, you feel that strong kind of sense of a negative reaction against that that's almost in your body rather than in your, in your reason. As you've had a bit of a chance to think about this and you've listened to some other of the podcasts, what came to mind to you? We've actually talked about this a huge amount um, around every dinner table that I've been around since listening to them. And um, my go-to was the power of community and the power of living in a way that is very messy and open and complicated and uncomfortable because that is the most beautiful and fruitful way to live and that that is more important than life looking clean or looking functional or unchaotic is actually this kind of beautiful chaos. The other thing that came to mind is about story and about the power of story. I've been thinking a lot recently about how we listen. I'm a, a, a bit of a talker, an opinionated and extrovert, and, and I found myself having these conversations sometimes where I've thought, oh, do you know, I've done that so wrong. That was two parallel monologues, you know, and we were all kind of saying the things that we thought and, and had forgotten to listen. And I've just been so challenged, particularly looking at how we communicate online about how do we listen? How do we live in a way that seeks not to be understood, but to understand that kind of age-old Francis of Assisi? And I think that to listen and to live in a kind of messy communal way is really the stuff of life. I'm going to wind back uh, further in a minute to childhood things, but I know that you've had some experience of living in, in community in a, a quite intentional way. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, sure. I am a huge advocate for community living. I think it is the absolute best way to live. Uh, right after we graduated, some friends and I um, met together. It was at what, a kind of open mic for sharing things you're passionate about called Dreams, um, run by a guy called Tom Bray. And we all, in some capacity, said, do you know what? We want to live differently. We want to house people who are homeless in our spare room. We want to invite everyone over for dinner. And we sort of looked around the room and thought, oh, gosh, there's a few of us who want to do this. Why don't we move in together? And we did. And for those four years you know, up and down, there were quiet patches too. We lived in a way that was honestly the most 
life-giving way I've ever lived and we shared bunk beds and in the spare room I was able to house people who were homeless and that might be for one or two nights emergency accommodation it might be an asylum seeker it might be a young person who's left home we had someone for six months who'd come to us straight from being um, street homeless in a park and used to collect animals and bring them into the house you know take tricks out of nests and we lived in this way where the door was very open and all of the things that I kind of held fast to, these straight lines, these facts, were very, very quickly just did not make sense and didn't stand. And this quite rigid beliefs I held when I was younger had cracks in them. Um, because you, you kind of think that there's such a breadth of experience and a breadth of opinion that it's very, very hard to say at the end of that that my one's the right one. So those, yeah, basically go and live in community. <laughs> it's, yeah, I've never learnt anything uh, so quickly as well. Firstly, my own flaws, but also the, the beauty of humans. I'm sure it taught you a lot about engaging with disagreement and difference, which I guess we'll, we'll come back to in a bit. But I want to wind even further back to your childhood to give people a sense of the story of that, of what formed you. Um, and particularly if there's any key ideas, whether philosophical or religious or political, that were very in the air as you grew up and that you think have contributed to the woman that you are now. I grew up in uh, the home counties in Surrey uh, and partly in France and I grew up with a mum who was very radical in the way that she lived. Um, I remember as a child her inviting homeless people to come to the house and to eat and to stay. She loved adults with learning difficulties particularly and she was an artist. She used to tell me stories about when she went out in Northern Ireland and covered up hate graffiti with you know, pictures of sea creatures and uh, just lived life in a way that obviously you don't know when you're a child that kind of other people aren't living in the same way. But she was the kind of parent that used to take us, you know, backpacking and, and really didn't shield us from poverty and didn't shield us from people who were very different to us. I mean, I went to a, a very nice, smart private school, but um, we'd be taken to local youth groups on the weekend. And I remember my mum paying for extra lessons for kids from our youth group so they could have the same opportunities as us. I feel very, very privileged to kind of have that in my bones a bit. I think inclusion can be hard and we like to say it's easy, but it's not. Including people who are different to us is hard. But there's something about the way I was brought up that meant that I found it easier, I guess. And that is a, a huge privilege. Um, what motivated her, do you think? She was certainly motivated by her faith. Um, she, we grew up in these very happy, clappy house churches. Um, and uh, yeah, she had a very, very super faith like no one else I've ever seen. I mean, such certainty. I, I suspect she's somewhere along the autistic spectrum and, and held very firmly to to these beliefs and and the belief that, you know, in absolute equality, you know, this there but for the grace of God go I, this this logic that everybody was equal and of value 
Um, and I think that just underpinned it really. The It's not related to that beautiful trait of hers that you've just mentioned, but the, the story f- from what I've read of the book that stood out to me from your mum that I absolutely love is her being at a party and saying, I'm not having fun anymore, I'm going home. And that, that kind of direct speaking feels like a kind of wonderfully liberated way of being in the world. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, she's incredibly blunt. She, I remember her um, telling a story. She had a, a craft knife, she's an artist, and saying, oh, yes, this I have this craft knife because I confiscated it off somebody that was um, doing muggings and I said, well, how did you confiscate their knife when they're doing muggings, mum? And she said, oh, well, I, I moved into their estate and I, the young people didn't have anything to do. So I invited them around for jam sandwiches and he told me about the muggings. And so I just confiscated the knife. And you just think, oh my gosh, you know, this kind of... And there, there is a real kind of, you know, sense of justice for the people that would be mugged, but also a real kind of, oh, come on, yeah. have a jam sandwich at my house. You know, there's, there's a real lack of fear. And I, I mean... Not to that extent, but I yeah, hope there's something of that um, radical acceptance and quite dangerous inclusivity that um, that I hope I've got a bit of. <laughs> so from that childhood, uh, in uh, it's interesting, isn't it? When we 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 if if all we knew about you is that you grew up in Surrey and you went to private school, then we might have a bunch of assumptions. And so it's really helpful to hear of the more complicated and rich story of what your mother's attitudes um, left you with. You went to study at Durham. What did you study? Uh, I studied philosophy and politics. So right up your street here. So after you moved to Durham and studied politics and philosophy and the awareness of the complexity of society and everything that you were facing living in community, was was there a direct line from that to then going to work in prison? Yeah, I guess there was uh, insofar as the people that we were meeting who um, might have been homeless or unstably housed um, or have issues around addiction were the people that were also in and out of prison. So we got to know this community who were quite linked with prison, who might be um, going in and out or have done a sentence or have uh, a parent in prison or um, a partner. And I was very, very struck that the people that we were supporting because they were very vulnerable were also the people who we were imprisoning. Um, during that time, I got involved. Um, a friend of mine, Dan, had started meeting up with a couple of guys in a barber shop who wanted to practice their a faith somewhere, but churches didn't really fit, perhaps because they had experience of prison or addiction. And one of the guys who was living for this, the guy I mentioned who had the animals in and out, uh, had started going along to the group and invited me. And I got to know this group of people who were just really my community and and still are. And they're still the people that I practice faith with and that I um, absolutely love and, you know, came along to my wedding and um, I do life with, I guess. And uh, that community was connected um, with a charity and the charity worked in prisons as well as out. And so I, when that charity advertised a job, I I just went in for it. And from then for the next two years, um, worked actually often with the same people um, inside prison as out. 
in fact, sometimes I did get in trouble because they were the exact same people. About twice I bumped into people in prison who had stayed at my house or come round for dinner and thought, oh gosh, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Um, but Why would you get of- in trouble? Because there's sort of procedures and, and boundaries. Explain to me a bit more what that instinct is to try and not have that interpersonal contact. Mm. Oh yeah, it's that's very firm in in how the prison system works. I guess because if you spend time with people or have they know where you live and then you come across them in prison, they're worried that there could be threats or you could be coerced into bringing in items. Um when I first worked there, we had a governor who was I guess more conservative in his approach. And we were discouraged even from if somebody waved to us in the street who we knew from prison, we were kind of discouraged from really even responding. So there's a very firm kind of end point from when you're allowed to work with people. I, I speak about that a little bit in in the book about this conveyor belt, which you drop off the end of when you get out of prison. Um, but there, yeah, it was a very firm connection. So... Tell me particularly about what you learned from going into prison. You'd already been in community with and living and working alongside lots of these people with different life experiences from what, from what you'd had. Uh, from that experience and through leading these, um, these groups of women and doing art with them and work, helping them think through their dreams and their plans for the future, what did you learn particularly about how we cross those differences, how we build bridges with people who would not necessarily immediately feel at home with or from the same tribe of? I guess I learned a few things. Um, firstly, that people are far less judgmental than you think. Um, I did worry, like, when I went into prison, would I find that people didn't want to work with me because I'd had such a different life experience from them. But I think there is a really human thing where if you care and want to do your job well and support people that stuff doesn't really matter there's a lot more in common than there is to divide and I think we we can forget that quite easily because we often have this quite polarized dialogue but I think that there's lots of really human things and I and I yeah I've shared times of maybe laughing at the same things or sharing the same faith or enjoying the same TV programs or or artwork. And, and those things are all very human connectors. Um, the other thing I have learnt is that I am rarely right. <laughs> I think you can be a little bit smug uh, about your opinions if, like me, you are... Um, I've been to a university and, and you know, you're a, a kind of guardian reading feminist. I think certainly I came in thinking that I knew what was right and what was the right way to speak and the right opinions about things. And and I was a lot of times I stood back and thought, gosh, I know nothing. I really don't. You know, there's so much that you miss if, if you go in um to these relationships thinking that you're the, going to be the one that has something to offer. Um, there is such, such a lot that I've learned from women in prison about overcoming adversity and and, and st- really unshowy strength in the face of adversity. 
And I think that that we have to give people space to say the the wrong thing or the inappropriate thing. And we don't like to do that. I know I don't. Um, one kind of example that's that's always quite prickly that I talk about is we had uh, a number of girls and women who'd had similar experiences to um, the girls and women in, in the Rotherham case and um, kind of exploitation rings. And the things that they would say, I'd find quite shocking because they'd be racist or uh, kind of inappropriate or, you know, just shocking to me. And so at first I would say, oh, you can't say that or that's racist. You know, these words that kind of block discussion. But of course, the only people that's letting those women say stuff is the far right, the Tommy Robinsons. So unless we provide space for people to say things that are not nice or difficult or inappropriate, then the people that will listen will be the intolerant who will take those narratives and will make them into something else and will polarise people with them. And it took me a long time before I started changing the way I reacted to those and just having that dialogue and letting people say things and, and not labelling them or or kind of shutting them down or or kind of you know thinking that I was the morally superior one because I'd recognize that that was inappropriate but saying actually there's space for your story and there's space for you to be heard and there is a real kind of smugness in shutting people down because they're not saying the right things I mean we talked a little bit um before we started about the kind of feminist space and I've thought again and again when I'm in feminist nights or feminist dialogue or reading these things there's absolutely no way that lots of the women that I know from prison could be part of that dialogue because they're not saying the right words or or in the right way um or even because there's kind of really prevalent narratives of things like oh do you know I'll life will change and I'll get better when I found the right man. And that kind of thing that, you know, if you said on a, on a panel of feminists, everyone's going, <gasps> yeah, how shocking. But actually, it's a really valid experience. Um, so it is messy and uncomfortable and complicated, but I guess what I've learned about how we communicate across difference is to to go in seeking to understand and to leave real space for what we view as uncomfortable or wrong and to know, do you know what? I might be the person that's wrong and not to use these kind of labels and generalizations that that stop a conversation um, and to ask questions. That's so powerful, Mim, and I think it's really profound in terms of where we are at the moment. And I really wrestle with it because I don't know what the boundary is between seeing the language people use as a flag for attitudes that are problematic and wanting to at least raise questions about some of the language that's used and what's just policing language and therefore kicking people into defensiveness and shutting them down. Um, and you said in the introduction to the book that you wanted to let these women speak for themselves and therefore some of the language would be uncomfortable to the readers. Um, how does that play out in terms of how you react in our, your public debates if you're on social media or in general someone uses you know, 
a word or a phrase that you would find uncomfortable? Have you changed how you would respond to that? Mm, I think I've changed that I would respond to that. So I had a really uh, funny little encounter a few weeks ago and I'd just been to the the People's Vote March, this the kind of Brexit march. And for me, it was uh, a kind of big deal. So my mum had died a few days before and I hadn't left the house and I finally thought, oh, do you know, today I'm going to leave the house. I'm going to get up, put real people's clothes on and leave the house. And my friends are at this march. And so I did and I got up and I I didn't kind of post on social media. I didn't want to kind of start a political debate with anyone. Um, And I filmed a little picture of this band playing, this samba band. I put it on my Instagram. And I'm not a kind of public figure on my Instagram. You know, I have a few hundred followers that are just my friends. And I had this guy... Um, leave me a message on my Instagram feed. Never met him before. Saying, uh, you know, you're wrong about this. And I just thought, oh gosh, you know, if you knew really that I just posted this to kind of show my friends I'd left the house and really wasn't that political debate. You know, if we were in the same room and he could have sensed some of where I was coming from and, and who I was and and I could have sensed some of what he was coming from and, and what was going on with him, then actually... We would have thought, you know what, <laughs> it's not the this time not for a discussion. It. We're not having a discussion now, you know. And so I kind of commented underneath, do you know what, I, I, I think discussion like this rarely fosters mutual understanding. Do you want to come to my community cafe and we can have a chat? You know, he lived nearby. And I said, I'm very, very happy to see you face to face and to sit down and have a cup of tea. But I'm, I, I think this kind of conversation uh, rarely is is kind online so I'll probably skip it for today and I got something like five messages more from this guy and each one I responded to oh not gonna have this discussion with him trying to continue the argument him kind of you know saying that I was you know denying democracy and all this sort of thing I thought there's a way of having discussion isn't there Mm. and actually I very much dislike the way that people, particularly who live in London, talk about people who voted leave, particularly in the Northeast. I think it's very unkind and stigmatising and and I'd be quite defensive um, have, being a Romanian myself of, of our local Brexiteers and I think they did it for good reasons. Um, I think a lot of the narrative around that is a bit, can be a bit patronising to the Northeast. Um, but the way this discussion happened... I felt so knocked by it. I felt absolutely winded about this kind of quite intrusive, no, I'm going to argue with you, I'm going to argue with you. And, you know, I looked at this guy's profile and he's, he's a church minister. And I thought like, God, yeah. you know, if we're in the church where we actually, me and this guy probably had loads in common, that we love the same area of the country, that we're both engaged in ministry and, and, and in faith. And actually the way that discussion happened was so this is what I think, this is what I think. I don't care that you don't want to hear it. This is what I think. And I just thought, oh, if I'd met you in real life, this discussion could have gone so differently. Yeah. And I think that is the thing um, with language. I I wouldn't, I think in extreme cases, I'm very up for for calling out language. um, But I always think that that's better as a question and as a discussion. Um, People on the whole... I think, want to use language 
in the way that's kind. I'd like to think that anyway. Um, and actually, if, for example, I'd been using the wrong language around trans rights and, and someone were to say, oh, can we have a chat about that? I'd be absolutely over the moon. You know, I'd be just very grateful to them that they'd been able to to sit down with me and say, that's not right. And again, I've had that discussion with lots of people, um, whether that's around language around gender uh, or language around prisons. People kind of use, use quite a lot of language around like offenders and that sort of thing in prison that I think, ooh. Um, but there is that moment, isn't there, where we use language policing as a kind of trump card, as a way of saying, ha, you've lost the debate, you used the wrong word, this discussion is over. Um, and I've done that before, you know, speaking to people in the Northeast and, uh, you know, about politics or, or feminism and said, ah, that's, that's sexist. Ha <laughs> ha, I've won. You know, and you think, yeah, but no one's learned, no one's learned anything. We've not moved forward. That wasn't a dialogue. That was me being, you know, smug and, and using my, let's, be really honest, quite privileged position of knowing the right language to kind of put down my trump card. And I I almost never have discussions online now because I just do not think that they are that kind. <laughs> and I don't think they hear people's stories in a broad way. They're quite distilled and yeah, I'm I'm very much you I mean I talked earlier about my the firm lines of of my thinking dissolving a bit and being challenged by the difference of people. And I think, you know, this applies here too. I think that social media and online communication is often these short, sharp headlines that give us very firm lines and fact and you're wrong. And that's not really kind or how the world works. Um, so I think maybe, no, I'm not going to, I don't do that much language policing online because I think it's not constructive. Um, I would do a fair amount in person. Yeah, I think it's much easier, isn't it? When you know someone and they know that you're fundamentally for them to say, you know, I've had a few conversations with male friends. I've been like, just so you know, like sometimes the word ladies can be a bit grating in certain contexts and actually most women just prefer to be called women. But I would only only do it with people that I know, know that I don't think they're a misogynist. I'm just saying this is a helpful tip. Not, you know, everyone who uses the word ladies is like a, sleazy misogynist but in general as a direction of travel if you can remember like, don't tie yourself in knots about it whereas even as I'm saying this now I realise there'll be people listening to the podcast that are like really? oh for goodness sake <laughs> and therefore even raising it not in person with our listeners carries a risk with it so if that's you I apologise happy to talk about it in person um, I wanted to ask about this the narratives about around prisons because your book has already had quite a lot of attention before it's even out, which is wonderful to see. And I imagine will um, be being read. And it feels like there's an appetite, particularly with this moment in fe feminism for women's stories, for understanding women's lived experience better. So what are the narratives around prisons and prisoners and female prisoners in particular that you want to be um, maybe telling a better or more accurate story around? Ah, oh, that is a great question. Um, almost everything that's said about women's prisons, really. I think that particularly who we in prison is a is a very big part of the story uh, I mentioned before that uh, I met a lot of women who had grown up in care a third of women in prison have grown up in care and 
less than 1% of the population have. So that's a huge amount. Um, I read uh, some time ago, you're more likely, if you've grown up in care, to go to prison than university. So I think there's a really big question we need to ask ourselves as a society. Who are we imprisoning? Um, the other big thing, I guess, around prisons is challenging that narrative again, this kind of black and white thing that there are bad people and we need to kind of put away the bad people and then, you know, we'll all be safe. And actually, that is a very nice and easy way to look at the situation. Um, But the reality of it is that we all uphold these structures, um, these structures that have within them huge inequality, that have within them a huge amount of abuse and trauma and those result in in women going into prison and that we're all part of a society that would like to kind of pretend that it's an isolated problem and that there are bad eggs um but that simply isn't true um and really it could happen to any of us it it really could have done it's so much a lottery of birth um Statistically, if you're a woman in prison, you are vastly more likely to have attempted suicide, have serious mental health problems, um, have been abused as a child, uh, being care, have been adopted. Domestic violence is a big thing as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and I kind of talk about some of these statistics in the book because I think what we do in, in particularly in kind of headlines, you know, we talk about this kind of sick offender or neglectful mum or... Um, these awful women and we particularly do it to women and women still get harsher first time sentences than men Um, and there is that sense of kind of you know these maternal women are supposed to be you know these caregivers and gosh here they are neglecting children you know we really villainize people and don't look at context really at all we have headlines and and we don't listen to people's stories. That's why I'm very passionate about listening to stories and and having stories as a way that we communicate and talk. Um, the other thing that I think should be very shocking to people is that women who leave prison are frequently um, released to no address uh, and very frequently uh, arrive back in prison often because of that um in the in the book i i talk about a, a woman called blackie who was in and out and in and out and uh she talks about doing a parole sentence and this is a more serious sentence so if you have one of those the state's obligated to give you a, a place when you get out so really for public protection so that they can say oh we know where these people are and uh it was her only parole sentence the rest um, was shorter and that sentence because she got actually quite ropey accommodation coming out was one of the longest times that she'd spent out and you know every other sentence was in and out and in and out and actually very very sadly Blackie who who was part of those stories and who helped me write those chapters she died of an overdose two weeks ago you know before she even saw the book and And I think if we could really get across, this isn't a case, you know, women's prisons is not a case of putting away bad people. This is what we do to the women who are the most vulnerable. 
It was really striking in the book as I was reading it that how many women are deliberately trying to get back into prison because when they're released, it's back to a pimp or an abusive partner or sleeping in a doorway. And prison is a sort of paradise compared to that, which does seem to me to be a a system that's not working for anyone that, that housing women in prison when if with a bit of extra support they could be they could be liberated to to, to lead a full life outside mm. and that's you know someone who thinks they're sort of reasonably educated about the issues i hadn't really joined those dots um i wanted to thank you for that really uh, i'd love to hear a bit more about activism in general because you know you've you you're someone who's in passionate about justice issues you uh, i was reading a piece of yours where you said uh, you know I'm, I'm a bit worthy, you know, I'll tell you how many Christmas uh, uh, mince pies are, are wasted every Christmas. And that I speak to quite a few people who are activists and in that space who were aware that that passion and that burden that some people have is actually quite difficult to bring to our public conversations because people are called worthy or earnest. And we have this insult around virtue signaling now. If you want to talk about the good, really, or doing things that are good or changing our behaviour, then you're often accused of of virtue signaling, cynicism kicks in quite fast. What do you think's going on there? And have you anything that has helped you in those public conversations about, you know, things that we as a society should be changing? Mm. Oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I have definitely in in life so far been a virtue signaler and a kind of worthy, you know, come bring all my causes who would like to see one of them. Um, and I do think there's something about being a little bit upfront about that and the fact that really if you're an activist the fact is you have a little bit of spare energy and spare time to put towards that and it's quite a privilege to to have that and I think there's uh, a really important thing about um, not being judgmental of people who perhaps don't have the spare time or spare energy um, to put into that um, oh gosh I don't really know what the answer is to kind of to bridging that gap and and to to being that one at the dinner party who says, "Oh, do you know, you know, how what's the carbon footprint of the steak?" and everyone sort of wants you to leave. Um, sometimes I think you've just got to be that person and just think, "Oh, yes, it's me again with my um, banging my drum, <laughs> banging my drum on my soapbox." But I guess just kindly um, and with the kind of added thing that you know I know about this stuff in prison and and the kind of politics surrounding it and I know about the carbon footprint of the stake really because I've been privileged enough to have a good education and and friends who are engaged in the same thing and just try and share that maybe you know host some events <laughs> we I mentioned before we had this kind of open mic around social justice and that felt really inclusive um because pe- people were talking about everything from you know how do we better give our kind of pound to the homeless person in the doorway and I've just started a charity that's you know changed the face of exploitation in you know the southwest so I think just honoring what people are doing at whatever level because it's hard to be good we're all doing it wrong all the time (laughs) yeah I think hypocrisy is part of what's going on in this situation because we all know we're hypocrites uh, deep down but we don't want to be accused of being hypocrites so even sort of starting something small 
feels like leaving yourself vulnerable to all the other things that you could be doing. And that seems like something that's thrown around a lot um, in public. I sort of wish we could have a kind of hypocrite's amnesty where we all go, (laughs) these are all the things I'm not doing, but I I want to hold on to a shred of kind of the earnest desire to do good and and save it from the waves of cynicism. Um, And again, it's about complexity and our ability to hold two thoughts together, I think, in our public Mm. conversations. And one of the fault lines that I think runs down the middle of our public conversations is um, is political. And obviously there's a kind of Brexit remain divide, but I think there still is a sense of um, people who would might feel like the label progressive would be more applied to them and people who might feel like the label conservative would be more applied for them. And when I was talking to Krista Tippett, who's one of my heroes from the On Being podcast, she said she stopped using the phrase social justice because it alienates um, more conservatively leaning people who uh, are also very involved in what she started calling social healing and have a real passion for social healing and might have as kind of strongly motivating a vision of the good and the kind of scandal of poverty uh, uh, as people on the left, but would be going about it with a different set of lenses and different um, set of tools. So I guess my question is, who are your kind of people that you're in conversation with? And this is a terrible assumption that you might lean more prog- progressive is that fair enough that is probably fair enough yeah. yeah didn't want to just assume the label so uh, given that you do who are the people on the right or who lean conservative that you are able to be in dialogue with and perhaps allies with or if not why not and what might help with that um i think that is a kind of question that might almost be more emphasized if you live in london where there perhaps is a little bit more of a bubble. Um, in the northeast, if you don't ally with people on the other side of the spectrum, well, then you're not talking to your neighbours, you know. And I think there's lots of people that come through our cafe who are just fantastic community activists. You know, they they volunteer in our Paisleyfield community shop and in the kitchen. And some of those guys think really different. I mean, some of them think the same opinions about the world to me, but, you know, I'm friends with a men's rights activist and um, very staunch leavers. And they are wonderful at welcoming other people into the cafe and they're fantastic at um, caring about their community and feeding people and including. And I think that that is really the beauty of living somewhere less bubbled. I guess the kind of housing thing in London leads to that where you've, you're have you with people and you live with people who are doing similar jobs and earning similar money, whereas we sort of a bit more mixed up in the Northeast. Um, so you do more naturally do activism with people of different thoughts, backgrounds, ideas. Um, so I found it, a bit easier um, I think and haven't necessarily the idea I find it so bizarre when people say like oh gosh I didn't know anyone that voted leave and I think what <laughs> what are you on about like who where are you going that you're literally only meeting people that think the same thing as you I mean yeah that I find that a bit baffling to be honest but I, I do know that if if I live down here you know I might well fall into the same thing but yeah I I don't find that a problem. I have lots of wonderful, kind people um, on the right who I really admire. 
I want to ask a little bit about um, your faith, which you mentioned uh, um, a few times in the book and I know has been one of your motivating factors. And we, we've talked a few times on the podcast about how we do in our public debates across those differences of belief and non-belief. Um, has that been something that's been kind of a, a personal thing for you as you engage with all kinds of different people in the Northeast, which sounds like a wonderful melting pot of where you are? Um, and what have you learned about engaging across those differences in particular? Hmm. Um, I almost find that a little bit harder um, in the same way as you might be able to argue with your family, but maybe not with kind of people you work with. Um, the the church is like being in this kind of, you know, messy, complicated family where you're sort of irritated by your uncle who's, you know, you kip gym or, or you kind of have these people you think, oh, God, they make the family look terrible. <laughs> why are we in this? Why have I got to be in with those guys? Um, but I guess the thing about that is that we are yeah, stuck in the same body. You know, we call it the, the body of Christ. And I might be a foot, and there might be some arms out there. And as sort of irritating as I find the arms, you know, they're part of the same thing as me. And that is, you know, that again in itself is a real leveller, isn't it? You just think we're all part of this thing. It's hard and we don't agree, but it's like being in a family, isn't it? And you, you're kind of <laughs> stuck with it in many ways. Um, the I do think that there is there is some some problems in the church around why it is a space where the mainstream church is not somewhere I'd be able to take the women I work with from prison and that irritates me very often um but faith is a great leveler I was listening to another episode of this with Sally Hitchner and she talks about everyone being this gift you know and that's her value everyone is a, a gift from God and it doesn't allow you the luxury of being better or othering others because we're all in this same boat. Mem, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay and it is a project of the Think Tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.